The history of television is a history of failure. For every television series that lasted years and years, there were dozens that lasted only one season or less. But did they deserve to die? Or were they... Cancelled too soon? Cancelled Too Soon, the podcast where we review television series that lasted only one season or less. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Orson Welles, and I'm here to tell you that fish sticks are wonderful things to eat in the halcyon plains of where the fish roam. Native farmers plant those fish. I can't. I can't go on like that. No, I was wondering how. I was, I was trying to see how you could have gone on for an hour and I wouldn't have stopped you. It doesn't even sound like Orson Welles. Not even uh, remotely. No, no, no I, I don't sound like Orson Welles. In fact, uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I'm the other critic of this show, and uh, we're going to be talking about Orson Welles. Yeah, late stage Orson Welles. <laughs> So we're going to have a great time today. Yeah, Orson Welles is a hell of a filmmaker. He directed what is arguably considered the greatest motion picture ever made, Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. It was his first film. Uh, and a youthful wunderkind who took Broadway by storm. He yep. took the theater world by storm. He took the radio world by storm back in the 30s. And then uh, movies ate him up. Movies ate him up and spit him out. Citizen Kane was the one where he had the most control. And, of course, it got him in big trouble because he was criticizing uh, William Randolph Hearst. And uh, evidently he pissed off William Randolph Hearst so bad that he couldn't get advertising for the film. And it wasn't that big a hit. A lot of people were kind of afraid to talk about it. He did a few other films, uh, like Lady from Shanghai, uh, that were... Well, I want to get into his work in more detail. I want to mm-hmm. introduce the thing we're talking about first. You just want to jump right in. You want to yeah. like dive right into Orson Welles. And let's, we'll let's... talk about the show we're reviewing somewhere in the 50-minute mark. Well, my, my point is he eventually fell from grace, essentially. He was ousted from yeah. Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, he had a more and more difficulty getting funding for the pictures he wanted. He wanted to make weirder and weirder stuff. Uh, And he wasn't taking that very gracefully. He was actually constantly railing against the Hollywood system, like bad-mouthing them. While simultaneously asking them for money. And uh, so by the time we got to the 1970s, he was bitter, considered kind of a joke by most people. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, still had a lot of interesting things to say, but was so pissed off about getting the funding to say them that he never got to. Yeah. And occasionally it would come together. Like, uh, Netflix finally fixed one of his films. Nobody talks about that one. It's a shame. It's very, very good. But in, ni- in the 1970s, he did have his own talk show. Yeah, that's right. Well, sort of. He put together a pilot for a talk show mm. that nobody asked for and nobody mm. wanted and nobody picked up. And it's still never been officially released, mm. but you can still find it online. It is The Orson Welles Show. Okay, so... So, so as Whitney was explaining in great length, and I really just wanted to talk about the show first before we moved backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Orson Welles in the later part of his career, uh, he struggled to get movies made. He hadn't, f- the last movie he finished 
in his lifetime was called F for Fake, and then he continued to work for many years on a variety of projects, most of which didn't come together in his lifetime or at all. And he would constantly take gigs just acting in things, often things with very little dignity, Mm. uh, in order to stay in the limelight, in order to stay visible enough that he can get his own projects made, in order to make money to get those projects made. Um, And, yeah, towards the end of his career, he was doing stuff like Transformers, the movie, which he didn't give a shit about. Mm. Like, openly, did not care. Uh, I know a lot of kids did. Orson Welles did not. That was his prerogative. Mm. He was Orson Welles. Significantly, he had a cameo in the Muppet movie in 1979. Yes. Which will will tie into what we're talking about. That's true. Uh, But, yeah, in 1979, he took... Well, actually, 1978, uh, he got together with his... uh, in later years, he mostly worked with one cinematographer, a guy named Gary Graver, who's not with us anymore, but did uh, shoot and uh, uh, did the director of photography on Orson Welles' last movie, uh, The Other Side of the Wind, which mm. was finally released by Netflix and is gorgeous and very good. And yeah, they worked together on a talk show. They wanted to do a talk show hosted by Orson Welles. What would an Orson Welles-hosted talk show look like well it would be kind of weird orson wells had a long history of working on a variety of mediums he reinvented broadway in a lot of ways with a lot of very daring restagings of uh shakespeare and unusual productions of uh you know politically minded musicals in the 1930s uh he was also uh very very uh prolific in radio in the 1930s he was the voice of the shadow Mm. so he had a lot of experience in a variety of different mediums uh, in the 1950s, he had another series, which we should really track down, called Orson Welles' Sketchbook. Or maybe The Orson Welles Sketchbook. Let me let me look mm. that up. Uh, but the idea behind the show... No, it's Orson Welles' Sketchbook. Okay. Uh, it was from the UK. It lasted only six episodes. Each episode was only 15 minutes. In each episode, Orson Welles talked about whatever the fuck he wanted to talk about and drew for us. <laughs> <laughs> Orson Welles is actually a very good artist. Uh, mm. This sounds like a cranky director version of a Bob Ross show, and I'm in. Like, I really want to check this out. It, it's the crankiness we need to lean into here, though. Because yeah, that was kind of the driving ethos of a lot of his later years. Yeah, because uh, again, he, after Citizen Kane, it won an Academy Award, won Orson Welles an Academy Award, but people were not happy with how he had uh, bucked the system. People were not happy with how he endangered uh, people by putting Hollywood in the crosshairs of William Randolph Hearst. William Randolph Hearst killed the movie so it couldn't make any money, and Orson Welles was never able to make a movie in Hollywood again without people dramatically cutting his work because nobody trusted him. Mm. Uh, so he got he kind of screwed himself over in some respects. He also got screwed over in equal measure. And he was very vocal about not being happy about the fact that all he really wanted to do was make films. All these other amazing things he did, amazing performances, uh, amazing Broadway shows, uh, writing, drawing, everything. What he really loved was directing films. Mm. And not being able to do that pissed him the fuck off. And so a lot of his appearances were about how mad he was. There was a really great uh, profile of Orson Welles in The New Yorker uh, several years ago where they talked about how they tried to sort of encapsulate his operational ethos as a filmmaker and how we think of him as sort of like one of the linchpins of classic like golden age Hollywood Mm -hmm. He made one of the best films of the 1940s and a lot of films a lot of uh, 
just film of that era kind of always comes back to Citizen Kane. But Citizen Kane was first time filmmaker kind of tinkering around a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Very experimental. It's experimental, but he did take a lot of existing ideas and just sort of remixed them to his own, to his heart's content and made Mm -hmm. this sort of something that just happens to be one of the best films ever made. You could actually argue Uh, it's a similar approach that uh, George Lucas would take with Star Wars. Yeah. yeah, Just take all these things that he likes, puts them in one kind of storytelling Mm -hmm. in a way that nobody had done before. It's familiar, but feels new. Yeah. And as a result, it seems to endure. I think, I think it's one of the great secrets to enduring cinema. Mm -hmm. Make something that people feel very familiar with, but that also pushes everything forward. It's harder than it sounds. Uh, but if if you take sort of everything he did since then, uh, it, there's this streak of uh, experimented experimenters uh, experimentalization going on. Uh, experimenting, <laughs> he, he's he's an experimental filmmaker essentially. Yeah. He tried to play with the way narratives could be told, and that really starts to come through in films like F for Fake, which he made later in his career, where he's kind of pulling back and forth the different layers of reality kind of stuff he was trying to push when he was a young man doing theater, but those are a little bit more straightforward. Well, they're more measured. Like, Mm. his early films, uh, in particular Citizen Kane, was very storyboarded. Mm. Um, They knew exactly what they were going to film before they filmed it, as Orson Welles started to make films in a more haphazard manner, Mm. and started to make films like Othello or Chimes at Midnight, and, of course, later stuff like F for Fake. He would sometimes shoot footage, have to take a break for months, if not a year, come back, shoot some more footage. And a lot of times he would have to find the film in the editing room, which is not an uncommon practice, but it wasn't what he had originally done. And as I think he got more accustomed to that, that sort of became his cinematic style. And his last two finished films in particular, F for Fake and uh, The Other Side of the Wind, really reflect that. They are very... I mean, they're edited like jazz. They're very freewheeling, mm. yeah. uh, very, very well, staccato. Ov- overlapping dialogue, and you're not really sure what the focus of a lot of this is supposed to be until, yeah. like, maybe the scene's even over. It's like being dumped into a crowded party mm. and just told to pick up the pieces as to what's going on. And it can be really, really hypnotic. I will say this right now. I don't think it's a great approach for a talk show, but it's kind of what we got. The Orson Welles show, when Orson Welles decided to make a go at television, he was a reasonably well-known celebrity. Um, he had a voice everybody liked. There was a certain dignity to everything that he did. Um, he thought maybe he could parlay that into an interesting kind of talk show. Uh, and his talk show... I mean, I, I will say this. For a pilot that wasn't even for like a network, like mm. this was just to shop around... He got some cool people. Like, here's who he got to be the guests on this pilot episode, which wasn't even guaranteed to air, and in fact, never officially aired. It was completed in 1979, but no network ever aired this. He got Burt Reynolds. Hmm. Late 70s Burt Reynolds. That's a good time to get Burt Reynolds on your show. Angie Dickinson. Back when she was a huge TV star, her name is perhaps not as well known now to younger viewers, but that was a good get at the time. And... The Muppets, <laughs> who it turns out Orson Welles was a genuine fan of. Like, on one hand, yeah, it's sort of, you know, it's who the audience would want to see. It's a smart thing to put on your show. Mm. But he got The Muppets, and this is fascinating. And we'll talk about the show in detail, all the different segments. He got Jim Henson and Frank Oz to break the fourth wall on the Muppets and just show up with their hands up Kermit and Fozzie and have a conversation as Jim Henson and Frank Oz 
with Kermit and Fozzie as puppets, this which they is, never did. This, I think, might be the only instance where they ever did that. Yeah. Like, appeared on camera with the puppets, like, opposite As the puppeteers, puppets. yeah. Like, not the, like I, I saw, like, outtakes where they're, like, location scouting for the Muppet sure. movie. But that was never meant to be seen by the, pu- the public. That was... Yeah camera test and of course they would do interviews as themselves but mm. they would never have miss piggy on their arm and break the illusion that mm. these puppets are real yeah they, that's, th- that's just part of the rules of the Muppets. you never do that so it's surreal to see that moment the other thing that's surreal to see is just how dedicated orson wells is to putting magic back on television and i don't mean <laughs> oh the magic well, of cinema i mean no stage like, magic like magic tricks because Orson Welles was an accomplished magician, and in fact, that's how he paid the bills a lot of the time in the later part of his career, was doing stage magic. Mm. However, Orson Welles hadn't figured out how to do that on television, and none of it works. And we will explain why in a little bit. Well, uh, so this is a presumably a late night talk show. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not crass, but they do discuss mature things. It's something for an adult audience. Yeah. Uh, and but it's not like the Tonight Show where there's a desk and it's a little bit like it's it's not so formal as that. Uh, yeah. Where there's not like a band and he waves and he gives a monologue. It doesn't have that structure. It doesn't it's, feel like it sprang from 1950s television. No, it's trying it's, to do its own thing. It, it's it's supposed to be a lot more extemporaneous. Uh, from what I understand, it was made to look like it was a multiple multi camera show, but they actually only had one camera. So there's a lot of really weird editing going on. There's a lot of voiceover going on to sort of Mm -hmm. tie it all together. And indeed when they were Uh, filming the uh, interview with Burt Reynolds, which is in front of a large crowd, mm -hmm. uh, they first off, uh, the crowd asks most of the questions of yeah, Burt Reynolds, yeah. not unlike a crappy Q&A that you would see after a movie where people mm. would be like, I have a two-part question. And mm. everyone in the audience goes, damn it. And it starts with, isn't it true that you, oh, God. No, I won't read your screenplay. Like all these <laughs> all these horrible, if you've been to enough Q&As, you've, you've been to some bad Q&As. But the, um, the, the questions were scripted, but the audience asks them. Exactly. So there's this, there's this weird air of phoniness to it all. Even though the sort of documentary style that they have by only having one camera makes it feel more extemporaneous and uh, off the cuff. Uh, A lot of the uh, transitions from question to question would cut to a shot of Orson Welles making the transition. They added that after the fact to make it look like it was a good show. (laughs) But in actuality... It's got a crap for so the audience. Here's the thing that's amazing yeah, it also to me. must have been a headache to edit. Just get multiple yeah. cameras. I know, I know. Well, again, they're on a budget. Yeah. And here's the thing. And here's basically all of the Orson Welles show in a nutshell. And I think com- comparing it to the idea of where Orson Welles' sketchbook is apt. Uh, Orson Welles is doing this for Orson Welles. <laughs> He's not doing this because he thinks the audience would be interested. Hmm. He doesn't care about the audience. He scripted the audience. <laughs> it's not there. But there's no, you know, the band is there on the Tonight Show to entertain the audience. Mm. And yeah, help with transitions and things, but they're there to entertain the audience. The monologue is there to entertain the audience. Orson Welles is doing whatever the hell Orson Welles is interested in. And he is interested in Burt Reynolds exclusively as he's moving into a directing career. He's interested in the Muppets as a concept. He's interested in stage magic and objectifying Angie Dickinson. Those are the things that, <laughs> that interests Orson Welles. He does not care if you're entertained or not. If you're entertained, it is a, it is a welcome byproduct of mm. Orson Welles getting to do whatever it is he wants to do. Because no one is more fascinating than Orson Welles, according to Orson Welles. 
Well, and uh, he's not wrong. Uh, <laughs> I didn't that, say he was wrong. That, that's kind of kind of the the, 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 the other edge of this sword. Uh, Orson Welles just sort of going wild and does whatever he wants is kind of fascinating to look at. There are certain talents where I'm willing to forgive their you know train sized ego because they tend to make interesting work because of it. Another filmmaker I'm thinking of is uh, Kenneth Branagh who's not as good as Orson Welles, I think we can, it's safe to say, but he's uh, quite a talented director. Some of his movies are up there. I would say he, his uh, Hamlet is up there. As Much Ado About Nothing is up true. there. That's true. His Hamlet and As Much Ado About Nothing are, are two just cinema classics. But yeah, I, I put them next to Orson mm. Welles' better Shakespeare plays, uh, movies. Yeah, I, guess, I guess that's fair. I think Chimes at Midnight belongs up there with them, but I would say otherwise, Kenneth Branagh's Shakespeare stuff on, on camera yeah, yeah. But, is, uh, is a little better than most of Orson Welles's. But you'll notice in Kenneth Branagh's career, he always gave himself like the biggest, meatiest roles, and he pointed the camera at himself a lot. It's like, Orson gonna... Welles did that, too. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be fair. Or, and Orson Welles also did that. And my point is, they the, the self-obsession and this notion that Audiences are going to find you endlessly fascinating works because these people are talented and they actually do have interesting interests. Mm. Uh, Orson Welles, he's interested in stage magic. He's interested in uh, Burt Reynolds, but not young, sexy Burt Reynolds and, you know, jokey, funny Burt Reynolds. He's interested in thoughtful Burt Reynolds. He wants to, like, get under the skin. He's like James Lipton. Like, tell me a little bit more about the yeah, character. Yeah, he's, he's, um, he's not interested in the fun stuff. The, tell me a quirky anecdote from the making of Gator. He yeah, wants to he, know about, he, he you know. said, you know, you're going to get into film. They start talking about Bergman, and uh, uh, Burt Reynolds makes this joke. Yeah, but wouldn't it be great if Bergman had directed Gator? Yeah, everyone like, talks uh, about how Bergman is so awesome. I'm like, give Bergman Gator. Yeah. See how he does. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not wrong. It's actually yeah, an observation. It's, um, it's a fair point. Like, the, the material does dictate like, a lot of this. Here's what I was able to direct. Got me some fucking slack. I couldn't make a Bergman film. <laughs> And yeah, people are like in the audience are asking these questions that are a little bit off topic. I remember one of the questions was, uh, you know, in the past there were so many films that were about women and now there are so few films in, here in the late 70s that are about women or by women filmmakers. Why do you think that is? And they just sort of riff on that idea for a little bit. Well, they riff on it and they come on some level. They talk about how. Uh, there are more being made all the time, and that's good. They also was a question about why there aren't more uh, women filmmakers, and they also yeah. said there are more all the time. Uh, whatever progress they thought had been made kind of plateaued pretty quickly mm. after whenever this conversation was had, because it's a problem we still have today. Yeah. Um, but uh, they talk about that, and uh, you know, they say it's getting better all the time, and it should get better all the time. But they also say stupid bullshit, mm. like about how, like, well, you know, it used to be that uh, the women of the household would decide what movies people would go see. And yeah, I'm and like, how many people did you poll, Orson? I'm not sure that's strictly true. I, I, he, he was just talking out of, it, out of his I ass. I know, but, but like, uh, he's talking out of his ass, and, and it shows, is mm. my point. Which is weird, because he scripted that question. He didn't have a better <laughs> answer to that, and he scripted it? You'd think if he scripted it, you'd have some gold mm. to share. And I guess I appreciate that Orson Welles took this opportunity to highlight some of the ills in Hollywood, but it would have been nice if he'd had more to say about Slightly it. Or, more sophisticated thoughts Or perhaps on the a woman to answer that question. Mm. Someone working in the industry, perhaps, of which there were some. Like, but, uh, I'll, I'll say this. 
Burt Reynolds is perfectly at home with this. Mm. I mean, he's he's an affable, relaxed kind of guy. I imagine yeah. he's very adaptable. He's a natural charmer. And and so you could put him in any kind of weird talk show situation and he would be able to sort of meet whatever level, level he's being uh, approached by. But he, he seems to be welcoming these kinds of questions. Yeah. I think he's probably been on the talk show circuit before. Mm. Uh, I think he was even on Midnight Blue at that point. Oh, or uh, or, or I, not, not Midnight Blue, but some late night adult programs yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where they smoked on camera. And Orson Welles smokes on camera a lot in this one. Yeah, it's true. It's just nothing but a stogie just, in his mouth the whole time. They smoked on The Tonight Show and women were called girls. <laughs> That's a reference to... The, 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 that's Mystery Science Theater. They're talking about how great the 60s were. Ah, yes. Now <laughs> I remember. Um, but yeah, no, I think this is something that Orson Welles was trying to push hmm. as a selling point, which is we can get big stars on our show because we will treat them with dignity and let them talk about their art. Let them talk about the industry. Let them talk about serious topics, which... Uh, I'm going to tell you this right now, after watching the Orson Welles show, mm. not as interesting as I thought it was. And I do this for a living. <laughs> like, it's actually like, I'm not saying there aren't, like, Burt Reynolds has some good anecdotes, and um, there's a couple of good moments here and there. Mm. There's this weird moment in which someone says, um, uh, do you think that uh, uh, you have more male uh, male fans or more female fans? And also, as a very big female fan, a, a big fan of yours, mm. may I kiss you? Mm. And Burt Reynolds says, well, let's cover that second part first. Mm. And she walks up and they kiss. And they kiss. <laughs> I think there's tongue. And after she gets up and he says, I think I have more male fans. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. It's a good joke. Yeah, it's yeah. a funny joke. It's, it's a bit presumptuous to ask that question and knowing that it's scripted sort of takes the edge off of that bit because that's a weird we should not be encouraging that kind of questioning mm. of our celebrities at Q&A's but mm. um, although I did I did see Jonathan Frakes uh, hug one of his female fans well, hugging at, is a, at, a, at a Star Trek convention if, 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 if that's like the, the, the question was the question was can, can I give you a can I give you a hug yeah, it's like sure. It's, that's consensual it's, and everything, you know. And, and, and as, as he was walking away, he said, uh, "She'll be asking for a kiss next." And I actually heard her say, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> I'm not now, saying it doesn't she, happen, but we shouldn't encourage. I, I should perhaps add also that she's like 14 years old. She's like okay. a, a teenage fan of Jonathan Frake. So okay. he he was very was very innocent. He was very. It was all very innocent, very and, innocent. and he did the, the ex- absolutely the right thing in that situation. Okay. But in any case. Um, yeah, so, but the, there's also a couple of weird moments in this. I think the uh, discussion about how, uh, you know, well, you know, women aren't driving forces in the film industry anymore and they're not making money and blah, mm. that kind of rhetoric doesn't really hold water. There's also a weird bit that gets a little racist when uh, uh, a member well, the, of the, the... The Egyptian bit? No, well, yes, but I'm talking about in the Burt Reynolds bit mm. uh, where uh, a guy asks, what's the difference between a star and a superstar mm. and which one is Burt Reynolds? And Burt Reynolds says, you know, only a person of color mm. would answer that, would ask that question. And I'm like, everyone laughs, including the guy who asked the question who, mm. who was black. And I'm watching I, I, this and I'm like... I don't know how racist that is. That's a weird thing well, to say. I, I don't know the context of that. Yeah. What what the words "star" and "superstar" meant in the late seventies? Well, like Orson what, is, what they're alluding to. Orson perhaps? Welles has an okay explanation, which is mm. "star" was only reserved for people who were above the title. But as a lot of other actors became better known, mm. even if they weren't 
the two leads in the film and became referred to as stars, we needed a new term that specifically referred to the above the title stars, and they, they became superstars, superstars, which is just stars, but now we added super in front of it. It's not a bad explanation, mm. but the weird way to make it like a. a mm. Yeah, to, to add ra- racially comment- motivated. Yeah, it's a weird yeah. racial commentary to that, even playfully in a way that clearly the audience was on board for, although they were scripted, so who the fuck knows, uh, is weird and off-putting and really took me out of the entire mm. Q&A, no. to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I, it's the sort of thing I would edit out. For, for, especially today. But, especially uh, considering yeah. we're editing it anyway. It's mm. not a documentary. You made this shit <laughs> up. Well, if I were a network, I'd be like, yeah, cut that line out. It's clearly a good laugh line. The audience seemed to like it. And, yeah, and I think, and, and, you know, the answers weren't scripted, just the questions were. So I yeah. think that uh, it is this weird combination of stagey, scripted, like almost talk show melodrama mm. mixed with legit documentary footage. And it keeps you a little bit off balance. And it does feel like an art film in a lot yeah. of ways. It feels like something like F for Faye. Well, you brought it up that it feels like uh, watching Inside the Actor's Studio. Yeah. If you ever watch Inside the Actor's Studio, uh, James Lipton would interview an actor uh, very seriously about their entire career going over mm. the majority of their major works or all of their works. If a lot of people made fun of James Lipton. James Lipton was great. James right? was great. Let's, he, let's not ever make fun of James, James Lipton. Lipton. James Lipton was uh, uh, lampooned because he had a very particular look and style. Yeah. It was easy to pretend to be James Lipton, ergo, it was easy to put him in sketch comedy. And the idea was, here is this gentleman, he looks like a proper gentleman, you know, a tweed jacket and a beard and he's bald and he's very soft-spoken and he never really he never goes after anyone he's interviewing he's Mm -hmm. always very respectful because the actor's studio was an actual like acting school this wasn't like hard-hitting journalism this was a class in which people like you know robert de niro or willem dafoe or whoever would come up in front of a class of people and they would answer a ton of questions about their career, about the craft of acting, what they learned from this performance, what they learned from researching this character, what they learned from this director. And then the last 30 minutes of the show would be the actor taking questions from the class. Mm. And often this was the most interesting part. Like there are like a lot of really, really interesting, like, you know, stories and words of advice that would come on a much more direct level because you're talking about people who are actually interested in the craft really getting into the meat and potatoes of it. And it was great until they started like running out of actors who could do it. And they started getting people who had only been in a couple of movies. Yeah. And I'm not saying they, they weren't interesting, but it kind of lost that sort of air of reverence and the show just kind of dipped out of popularity a little bit. But regardless that tone Mm. That reverent tone. Orson Welles introduces people in the Orson Welles show like they were gods among us. <laughs> Every single... Oh, oh, Burt Reynolds, a mustache of a man. <laughs> Handsome, debonair, shy, outgoing. Everyone loves him. A sexy man. Yes. Destined to be a great artist. Yes. So, uh, women love him. Men want to be him. Critics are finally coming around, the bastards. Finally, Burt Reynolds will be recognized as the world's greatest human. Praise him! Praise Burt Reynolds! He is our guest today. <laughs> like that's, that's actual dialogue that's, for the show. That's yeah. the tone. 
I mean, I would go on the Orson Welles show, even if it was the worst show in the world. I would go on the Orson Welles show just to get Orson Welles to introduce me like that. Like, <laughs> holy shit, that's better than an Oscar. It's amazing. And you can tell Orson Welles has like a lot of affection for the people that he's uh, working with. Mm. Um, the Burt Reynolds segment, by the way, this is like a, this is supposed to be like for a 90 minute show. Yeah. You know, like the Saturday Night Live time slot. Um, so it's pretty long. The Burt Reynolds segment is like three commercial breaks worth. Like it's pretty thick. Mm. Probably could have been cut down. I'm not going to lie. Like it's because it, well, it, it's because yeah. it's nothing but Q&A. Even if you cut back to it, mm. if you did something else, like when it was magic tricks or whatever, and then you cut back to it. That would have like spiced it up a bit and made it a little bit more interesting. But once we leave Burt Reynolds, that's where the show starts falling apart. Yeah. Because at the very least, it's an odd way to do a talk show. And a part of me kind of just wished I could just see Orson Welles and Burt Reynolds talk. Mm. I think that'd probably be more interesting. If, but if it were once like a, a, we, yeah. a one-hour show or like just conversation show. Yeah. I guess that, that's that's the thing, uh, what it is. It's it's not so much a talk show yeah. as it is a conversation. Yeah. Uh, which is what I think a lot of modern audiences aren't used to seeing on TV. Yeah. That's, that's why we come to podcasts. It's what we do. Yeah. We converse and we record it. But... Uh, on television, I think we're so used to that 1950s Steve Allen setup. Yeah, I'm at a desk. I guess it was Joe you're Franklin, on a couch. kind of, kind of. Well, whoever, it, whoever yeah. invented it. Like uh, I'm yeah. at a desk. You're De- on a desk, couch. You're on a couch. There's we'll a band have, over there. We'll have a very brief, very light conversation without any actual substance. Probably about your it's, latest project. Yeah, it, it's always related to some latest project. At least it has been for the last couple decades. And yeah, then we'll play them off, and everybody has a great time, and and they go home. And maybe we'll do something funny. Yeah, maybe like, there'll be a bit. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, hey, uh, have you ever played beer pong? <laughs> We're going to play and, beer and of course, pong with Stephen Frears. It's Frears Pong. Yay. <laughs> with Stephen Frears Pong. That's a great idea, and you know that's a great idea. Frears Pong, the show I would tune into every friggin' week. Right? <laughs> but in those scenarios, the guest is always allowed to just sort of go off. They're allowed to say whatever they like, or they have, like, a bit prepared or an yeah. anecdote they want to tell, so they ask the host to ask them about that, the, and they can tell an anecdote. The vast majority uh, of talk shows usually go over... I mean, it's pretty extemporaneous, but they also go over, here's what we want to talk about, what are you mm. uncomfortable talking about, what are you uncomfortable talking about. Mm. Some of the more hard-hitting shows won't do that, mm. or they'll happily go off script if that's more interesting. Yeah. I'm told that, uh, or at least I've read, that uh, Jimmy Kimmel doesn't prepare interviews he likes to be completely off the cuff yeah, yeah um, it was the same with uh, craig ferguson when he yeah. was on the air in fact when the guest came out craig ferguson always made a point of ripping up the blue cards yeah to the point where there was nothing ever written on them it was just <laughs> <laughs> just gave him this prop and he ripped it up and threw it up i always love that once i realized that that true professionals have blue cue cards yeah those little blue note cards yeah like john uh, john stewart always had blue pieces of paper to read from <laughs> i always thought that was the coolest thing ever but uh in those scenarios, the guest gets to talk. It's all been pre-approved, and uh, the interviewer, the host of the show, kind of sits back and lets them do the thing, lets them be the star for that moment. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't until I saw the short-lived The Martin Short Show mm. where they actually had a different setup, where it was a bunch of guests all at once, and they were just in chairs in kind of a semicircle. Yeah. And it was more like uh, like a, a 
a library lecture or a college symposium where they all just sort of took turns and they all had things to contribute and they all stopped and gave anecdotes, including Martin Short, who was the host of the show. Yeah, that's more popular in uh, in Europe. I've seen a lot of British talk shows that have that format where they just yeah. get everyone out. Because usually it's like, okay, we're going to bring out Brad Pitt. Okay, mm. we'll talk to Brad Pitt for 10 minutes. Great. Thank you, Brad Pitt. Go leave. Hmm. No one liked me, Joe no. Black. And then we'll bring in, <laughs> and, and then we'll bring in Beck. Beck has a new album. We'll talk to Beck for five minutes and whatever. And but like in in a lot of British shows I've talked to, they would be like, oh yeah, we'll bring out everyone all at once. Why not? And yeah. then we can have Harrison Ford having a conversation with with Beck. Spike Lee yeah. and Beck. Like, uh, I want to see that. That's a great idea. Please do that yeah. instead of just giving everyone five well, minutes to do a soundbite. And they also did that on uh, Bill Maher's Politically Incorrect. That was oh, yeah. also the shtick with that show. But but that was very, like, political conversations. It was a little yeah. more pointed. It was, it was very guided. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, notice Bill Maher was always, like, dead center. Oh, yeah. because he was Bill Maher. Because he's yeah. Bill Maher. Yeah. Speaking of giant egos. I think I I sense from that Orson Welles likes the same thing I do when it comes to actual talk shows. I want to see a little bit more of a natural conversation. Yeah. And even though he's scripted the questions, I think he's allowing it to stretch and move in a little bit more of a natural fashion, which is an odd thing to say given how heavily edited it is. Uh, he's pro- Orson Welles probably took a look at a lot of old late night talk shows like The Tonight Show and said, that's that's phony. That's not that's clearly not what I want to do, because this is clearly just a big cog in the fame machine that I hate. Why can't we have a little bit more of an honest conversation about what these people are really like and also have it be a lot longer? Not just give yeah. them like three minutes of airtime. Why not just give them half Look, of the show to talk? I'm all for. And I, I understand every, everything he's doing here. I, I I'm kind I'm, of on its wavelength. I'm all for long form uh, interview pieces. Whenever we've done uh, podcasts that have been interviews, mm. we've always wanted to do long form. Whenever we got to do it, it's always been fascinating. Mm. Uh, I fully support that. I think that's great. I fully support having a uh, uh, an intellectual conversation. Mm-hmm. With your guests, rather than only talking about uh, frivolous things or what the latest project is, I think that all of that is amazing. What I object to in this Burt Reynolds segment is the fact that here are Burt Reynolds and Orson Welles, and they're on like a stage, and they're surrounded by people, and they're all like fawning over them. They're just looking at like, "Ooh, what wonderful celebrities!" And I've read so many interesting things. About you too, and I'm like, no, you haven't. That's scripted, and <laughs> there's something about it that strikes me as self-congratulatory. It's sort of like um, you ever see uh, a face in the crowd starring Andy Griffith, Patricia Neal, Walter Matthau. Never actually saw it. Okay, um, amazing movie. Mm. Really uh, talked about how uh, television would contribute to uh, unhealthy cults of personality, mm. uh, where uh, a sort of a fascinating. Uh, young rebellious uh, person played by uh, Andy Griffith before he developed his you know purely wholesome image mm-hmm. um, ends up through a series of circumstances uh, on television and he's so uh, daring and he's so willing to say you know whatever needs to be said even if it's uh, against the grain or maybe even ill-advised that he starts becoming more popular and he starts getting his own show and then he mm-hmm. develops eventually towards the end and this is something I was thinking of a little bit uh, he develops a show that he's like, I want a show that's just me saying what I think 
and what I believe and a whole bunch of people around me say, that's great, you're a genius. Mm. And even though that sounds like a terrible idea for a show, they do it and it's successful and it helps make his ideas reach a bigger audience. It's the Donald Trump playbook. Mm. Like they've actually said when Donald Trump went into the White House, he said, I just want to get up there and I want every day people to see how much we're winning. Mm. Every time he does a press conference, he has people, big CEOs and the vice president and everyone just sort of nodding like, yes, yes, we should drink bleach. This is interesting. No one's ever thought of this before. Um, that's kind of the vibe that Orson Welles is creating here. It also reminded me a little mm. bit of like that bit in uh, The Other Side of the Wind, the last film that was uh, mm. he made that was finished after, long after he died, where you know the big filmmaker based on Orson Welles, played by John Huston, you know, walks into his party and everyone's like taking pictures of him and asking him cool questions because mm. he's the most interesting person in the world. And I'm like, I get it. It's the Orson Welles show. Well, like, yeah, part of me, it's, it's, it goes a little too far. Here, here, and here's the. Uh, the extra added layer of, of weirdness and kind of self-serving uh, ego stroking that's going on with that. Orson Welles wanted the fame, not so he could roll around in the fame and enjoy the love that's being poured on him. Yeah. He wanted a constant stream of love specifically so he could reject it. Yeah. Like he wanted to, to so look cool. He wanted a lot of love coming his way so he could, so yeah, so put on his shades and kind of sidestep it a little bit. Yeah. Just say, I don't I, I don't need I'm your... too cool for love, but I need to be seen rejecting it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which, which, you know, of course, that's a way to make a statement. It's like, I, yeah. I want to make sure that well, I, I'm not, I don't, I'm, I'm not a necessary cog in this machine. I don't need you guys. But at the same time, he needed them there to tell them that he didn't need them. Well, it's actually everyone, everyone who becomes famous, mm. like legitimately famous and who courts fame, not like... Mm. I had a viral video. It was kind of an accident. I'm never, never planning on doing anything like it again. That's the definition of the 15 minutes of fame. Mm -hmm. But for people who actually pursue careers in celebrity through uh, television, music, whatever, whether it's completely genuine and all you care about is the music, but celebrity helps you get your voice heard, or you're genuinely looking for celebrity as part of that package, which I get it. I don't think there's a lot of shame in that. I think, you know, that's, that's an honest thing to say is that I want to be rich and famous. But more power to you. It's hard to do. And one of the things that comes along with that is knowing your brand. Knowing who you are. Knowing how you come across. Mm. And that how is, to that maximize is, that. That is not your talent. That is your brand. Exactly. Right? And yeah. you're, you should have, hopefully, talent to go along with it. But if you're going to be a celebrity whose image endures, like someone, someone like Burt Reynolds, for mm. example, you need to know what it is that people look to you for. And know how to give that to him. In fact, uh, Burt Reynolds even has a question about that, where they're talking about how do you manage your image. Hmm. And he talks about how I'm known as a ladies' man. And if I was as much of a ladies' man as they make me out to be in the tabloids, I couldn't be here. I'd be too exhausted. <laughs> Which is a good gag. Hmm. But he talks about how one of the things that I do, because that's not really who I am. I, I'm, I don't sleep around as much as people think I do. Um, I will go on talk shows and they'll talk to me about that being my brand. And I explain that I'm not. And for some reason, that rejecting it makes people think I'm more of a catch than I am. <laughs> so he's kind of in a win-win situation here, <laughs> as long as he's polite and, and tries to be respectable. But because he just, that makes him seem so much cooler, mm. it makes him seem like even more of a catch and a, uh, more of a Lothario. Um, there's an element of that in a lot of celebrity. 
you know yeah, the yeah. the trying to reject it trying to live your life normally that there's a respectability in that and people want to glom onto it and Orson Welles mm. he didn't he didn't manage his celebrity great in the later part of his life he became too much of an iconoclast to really maximize his celebrity for fame and fortune but he was a name Mm-hmm. He was a rebel, you know. He he uh, he had respect from various uh, young filmmakers and film students and teachers and things. And um, you know, if he said something, people would read it. People would write a book, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so he was making the most of what he had. Yeah, I think. And this is an attempt to do that. Uh, the next segment on the Orson Welles show is the Muppets. Like you've never seen them before. Well, Bad. The, well, <laughs> here's the thing. This reminded me a lot of uh, the Muppets, the 2011 TV series, mm. uh, in that they're trying to uh, make the Muppets seem more like natural. Yeah. Which is really odd for the Muppets because they're puppets. Yeah. And they're trying to capture that same extemporaneous quality mm. where they're talking about their careers in this sort of relaxed way. Now, the Muppets can do that. Yes, they could satirize that. They could have like, you know, turn, turns out being a porcupine is really tough. <laughs> you know, what's tough about it? Well, let me tell you about being a porcupine. <laughs> you know, that, that would be a, a Muppets gag. And then, yeah. of course, and then, of course, they break into song. Uh, and so that that's... But the thing is, it's in the exact same style as the whole Burt Reynolds segment. It's edited the same way. It has that weird dark lighting. Yeah. And you have like these extreme close-ups of Kermit and of Fozzie. And they're, and they're never like on camera at the same time. Mm. Like, here's the thing with the Muppets. You don't see a lot of editing in a Muppet sketch. Like it's, yeah, it's, be, it's puppets. Because, just yeah, perform it. Yeah. yeah, you've got a, you've got a bit of a stage. People are hanging out like beneath whatever the ledge is or whatever. They got the puppet in their hand, and they do it mostly in one take. Mm. And there's a reason for that. One, that's a tradition of well, there's multiple reasons. For that one, there's a tradition of puppet theater where we're used to just seeing puppets perform an entire bit all by themselves mm. without any cutting. That's that's just sort of a expectation. Uh, but also you want to sort of accept their reality and the longer you sit with them, the stronger that reality is. If you are constantly cutting from one extreme close up of Kermit to another extreme close up of Fozzie to another extreme close up of Gonzo Mm -hmm. and you're only cutting to those extreme close ups, you become hyper aware that they're not in the fr- in the frame together. You become hyper yeah, aware it's, that it's they're like watching the Expendables. Yeah, and they're and they're also they're in darkness, so it's kind of gloomy and depressing, mm. and it looks like they're in limbo. And as a result, their conversations don't feel natural. They actually look incredibly fake. Mm. So that doesn't help. There's which, also which this, is a weird thing to say about puppets. Well, it's true, but like mm. we we like we said, it's weird to break the fourth wall with the Muppets because the entire idea of the Muppets is that we're supposed to accept their reality. Yeah, yeah the yeah. movies never show you a puppeteer as a joke. That would break the reality of mm. it. And here, everything about the construction of the Orson Welles show breaks that reality literally when we start interviewing Jim Henson and Frank Oz, but also just cinematically. There's also this weird bit, and you can tell they like tried to make it work mm-hmm. to mixed success where um, we would see Kermit and Fozzie and they'd be in shadow. And then if you look carefully, you'll see that the puppeteers, Frank Oz and Jim Henson, mm-hmm. are sitting next to them and they're wearing and their clothes are the same color as the chair that they're sitting on. <laughs> That's true. To like sort to of like camouflage. Yeah, them to a just make bit. it yeah. look a little less obvious. 
And I thought that's all it was going to be. And maybe be a little hyper-stylized. But then the lights came up on Jim Henson and Frank Oz. And you're like, what the fuck? So there's this weird segment about Fozzie, like, buying jokes from someone who isn't funny. It's not funny. Orson Welles gets a few zingers off. They're not funny, mostly because of the editing. Gonzo is there. He's trying to carry their cue cards. It's not funny. And then he interviews Jim Henson and Frank Oz, which is briefly interesting because they talk about um, the history of puppeteering. I didn't know that Jim Henson had no interest in puppeteering until he just saw a wanted ad for puppeteers and just thought this might be a good way to break mm. into television. I didn't know that. That's interesting, actually. <laughs> that's that's an anecdote worth telling. I Neat. But um, it's also weird to see uh, Orson Welles completely fawn over Jim Henson. Not without cause, of course. But he's completely fawning over Jim Henson and Frank Oz is sitting right fucking there. <laughs> it's like it's like if the end of The Wizard of Oz was just Dorothy Gale talking about how much she loved the Scarecrow, the Scarecrow is the best, mm. and then she left without saying goodbye to the Tin Man and the Lion. <laughs> That's what Frank Oz is dealing with. It's And of course, Frank Oz was less well-known than Jim Henson at the time. Yeah, yeah. And Frank Oz does get a few questions all to him, but yeah, Frank Oz would of course become... Uh, a co-director of several Muppets movies. He would then eventually become a successful director, movies, yeah, yeah. successful director of, of many different genres. And um, Frank Oz is a genius on, in, in his own right. What was his last film? Was it The Score? Was that the last film Frank Oz directed? Was that the last one he did? I feel like he did one since. I'm going to look that up. Oh, no, De- Death at a Funeral, I think, was after that. Oh, was that? Oh, that was him. That was Frank Oz, yeah. I'm going to look up his, his film. That is the original right British Death at a Funeral. And he's done some TV since yeah. then. Um, but... Yeah, Death at a Funeral, 2007. He also directed uh, the documentary Muppet Guys Talking. Oh, right. Which, yeah, which yeah, like I this, is also one. very conversational mm. and also breaks the fourth wall because we're talking about people who voice the Muppets mm. throughout the generation. If you get a chance to watch that documentary, if you like the Muppets, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's not the, an amazing documentary, but it's very interesting. I, I don't want to say that this is the Muppets sort of at the height of their power. This was, I'm not sure if this was right, I guess it was filmed right before the release of the Muppet movie. They must have been working on it at the time. Yeah, it's probably uh, how he had such an in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's entirely possible that Orson Welles had already filmed his segment with the Muppets. Yeah. Because uh, he's in that movie, yes. not to spoil it. It's kind of a surprise camera. It's it's, but, a, it's a gag. He becomes he's and the gag is extra funny because he plays like the head of Hollywood. He's like Mister Big Shot or whatever <laughs> yeah, his name yeah, is. Yeah, he's he's like the person in charge of Hollywood Studios. Mm. Is played by Orson Welles, the pariah of Hollywood Studios. It's a little. <laughs> it's mildly subversive, mm. and I do like it a lot. Who who's like sort of out? I was, I was trying to think of like a big Hollywood muckety muck who's sort of persona non grata now to, who could play that in a Muppet movie. I don't know now, about but, persona non grata, but, but, but like who, like David Lynch playing the oh, head of a Hollywood yeah. studio would sort of be just like he wouldn't. <laughs> that you scamps, he wouldn't do that. I'm not going to give you a contract. You're a frog. <laughs> Any excuse to get Whitney to do his David Lynch impersonation? Now, here's my question. Do you have a bear? I think I would like to put a bear in my film. That's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, all, it's all a joke. Um, David Lynch would be great with the fucking Muppets. <laughs> He'd be really funny with them. Can you imagine Muppets doing a Twin Peaks sketch? I'm sure it's been. I'm sure it's happened. Has, has it? it? Oh, I don't know. I don't recall. Mm. If anyone knows that the Muppets have done a Twin Peaks sketch, like an actual mm. one, not like some parody that there was done mm. online, please mm. link us to that. The, the I man, really want to see that. The man from the other places, Pepe the Prawn. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The gummy light's gonna come back in style, okay? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, this is it for Michael for Michael Table, okay. Anyway, they interview uh, uh, the Jim Henson Frank Goss. Mm. It's an okay interview in and of itself. We abandoned the whole audience gimmick. It's just Orson Welles and them. Mm. And then, and it look it looks like they're filming on a stage after hours. Like oh, yeah. they only have shop lights or something. Oh, yeah, it's, it's very yeah. dark and stylized. And again, TVs weren't that sharp back then, so I'm mm. not sure how appealing this would have been. But then after that, things get weird. Because after this, Orson Welles decides to start doing magic. Now, once again, Orson Welles was a talented magician. An actual stage magician who knew sleight of hand, Mm. who could do real magic tricks. No disrespect to him as a magician. He has even incorporated magic into his stories. He uses it as a metaphor and effort fake uh, for the magic of cinema. Mm. Which is why it's weird when, in the Orson Welles show, he breaks the cardinal rule of filming stage magic on camera, which is mm. the second you cut away from it, the audience knows it's bullshit. Yeah, yeah. If you do like a uh, uh, like a card trick right in front mm. of somebody, especially if it's like elaborate and crazy, mm. like it's not just like, oh, is it this your card? Like, no, no, it's like, oh, your card is in my pocket this whole time. What was that forgettable uh, magician comedy with Steve Carell from a couple of years back? Oh, the incredible like Burt Wonderstone. Burt Wonderstone. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in that in that film. There was a shot uh, where, uh, and evidently this was choreographed by David Copperfield. Like he came up with the trick. Yeah. And it was it was like medium close-ups of the actors, and they're sort of like putting on cloaks, and then they they teleport across stage, and birds are released, and it, it's an impressive musical uh, musical magical trick. Yeah. But you'll notice that they didn't cut at all. Yeah. That it's just one shot. The camera follows it around. And you can tell maybe they used some like angles to obfuscate something here and sure, there. Sure, that's what, that's what but, you do on stage anyway. Yeah. yeah. But at the very least, you can tell that they actually did a real magic, at least one real magic trick in that Yeah, move. they're playing fair. Yeah, there, there's other weird things where like uh, Alan Arkin like coughs up a bird. That's clearly CGI. If you ever get a chance to see, uh, I think it was an HBO or Showtime special called Ricky Jay and his 52 Assistants. Oh, yes. What an amazing <laughs> stage show. Holy shit. Ricky Jay, recently deceased Ricky Jay, absolutely wonderful actor and incredible magician, sleight of hand artist, and con mm. expert. Uh, wrote a lot of books about some of the most fascinating people in history. Really fantastic. Mm-hmm. Check him out. Luca uh, likes playing with his bowl. That's he's what playing, that noise is. Playing hockey with his food bowl. Yeah, thank you, Luca. Yes, he's spreading it around like a like an air hockey puck. <laughs> um, but uh, Ricky Jay did a stage show that was him talking about uh, you know famous card sharks, uh, famous con artists, and he would do card tricks and this actual if memory serves the show was directed by David Mamet and so there was a lot of care taken to make sure that when Mm. Ricky Jay did an incredibly complicated trick there wasn't a lot of camera trickery or even just camera uh, unnecessary editing so that you knew it was real Mm. because again once you like say oh and I've put this woman in a box this is what he does Mm. I'm gonna put this woman in a box and we're gonna shove sheet metal into her oh yeah scary Mm. really creepy she's probably dead and then you'll see, you know, the box is open. She's got the sheet metal in her. Oh, it's so gross. But because the camera keeps editing, it doesn't matter if you did it all in one take. You could do it all in one take. You could do the whole trick, and it could be the coolest trick in the world. But as soon as the camera edits, the audience knows that that was an opportunity to switch her out, mm. to fake something, to change stages, to change the props, anything at all. And that sucks, and it's a waste of time. Because I don't believe it at all. And I know it was an earlier time, but I think people were reasonably savvy to editing exists. Yeah, no, no. So it just doesn't work. I'll tell you how you take the curse off of this sequence. 
Mm. He's sawing Miss Piggy in half. <laughs> because we know it's fake. And then it's funny because he's doing it with the Muppets. Yeah, yeah. That um, takes the curse. You get all your magic. You can fake it. You can do all the editing you want. But it's the Muppets. So who gives a shit if it's also, fake? We know if it's fake. Also, watching Miss Piggy, like, yuck it up with a young Angie Dickinson would have been awesome. Oh, that would have been amazing. Because I don't think Angie Dickinson was ever on the Muppet show. Like, I mean, they got a lot of big stars. I, they might, but, she might yeah. have been. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so that's the big trick there. And then Angie Dickinson gets to come on. And Angie Dickinson doesn't get the dignity of an interview. Angie Dickinson gets, uh, you know, she was... She's the, an assistant to his magic. She was, she was a big TV star at the time, and she probably deserved an interview, at least mm. a short one. You know, I, mean, I realize not everyone's going to get the 30 minutes Burt Reynolds gets, but something. But instead, they're just like, ah, yes, uh, last week... We went to a restaurant with Angie Dickinson. and uh, We talked see, about pretty maids all in a row. Hey, we didn't know such thing. In fact, actually, we did a card trick with so much editing that it doesn't fucking matter what it was. <laughs> and, uh, and I told Angie Dickinson to put her hand in a box full of cards and to shuffle them randomly with her hands. And we could see her hands in shadow. And I told her to stroke them erotically in a honestly somewhat condescending and inappropriate mm. way. And in the end, haha, her card was there, which for all we know, I did off camera during between edits. Boo fucking who. And then it ends with Orson Welles really trying to ratchet up the tension. <laughs> but I see what he's yelling a lot. Yeah, it's, it's uh... weird. He's trying to make it really intense. He's trying to make it look like he's going to die on stage, which I feel like if that's what he was going for, that's a great way to begin an episode. Where he'd be like, yes, welcome to the Olsen Wells show. I don't do a great Olsen Wells show. Hold on, let me see if I can... Turn it, turn it into Quentin Crisp all of a sudden? <laughs> let, me, let me see if I can do this. Yes, um, uh, I am Olsen Wells. Okay, yes. Uh, welcome to the Olsen Wells show. I am Olsen Wells, as you may have noticed from my voice. In any case, tonight we have Burt Reynolds, Angie Dickinson, and for our grand finale... I will die. Don't go away. I'd be like, oh, oh shit, what's going to happen in this episode? Here, my, my guess here is that Orson Welles is playing into kind of how how uh, hated he was. He's <laughs> probably banking might, on... like You might want to see him get shot on yeah, it's camera. Like, oh, I know you all hate me, so tune in. I'll, I'll get shot. You'll love it. Because like when when they did all the marketing for that House of Wax remake and Paris Hilton was in it, and yeah. they sold these T-shirts that said "Watch Paris Die" because oh, yeah. they understood that she was kind of a hated figure at the time. Yeah, there's a big uh, cult around that movie now. Apparently, people really like it. Look, we don't need to lionize and and uh, dip in bronze every single cinematic experience we have from the last <laughs> twenty years. All right, here's here's House my... of Wax. Did a few competent things, and we can just put it aside now. Here's my theory about why that happens, about why there's so much emphasis on, yeah, ten years later, this is actually a good movie. Here's the, re here's the thing. Ten years later, the people who didn't like it aren't writing articles about it. <laughs> yeah, the people they, they who put just, it aside. The people who just thought it was okay or forgot about it, mm. they don't care. The people who care, who totally deserve a voice, they're the ones who are writing articles about it. And as a result, a lot of these, uh, uh, the passion for these things gets impressed. And indeed, if enough people agree, you know, hey, you're right. Lake Placid was really good or whatever. Mm. 
then these things start getting, you know, a new lease on life. And indeed, that's how a lot of films, including Citizen Kane, which was largely forgotten for about a decade, Hmm. suddenly find their acclaim. So I'm not going to begrudge that. And I've actually never seen the remake of House of Wax, so I have no idea one way or another if it's any good. Um, I was just uh, digressing. But in any case, yeah, so the idea of this is Orson Welles is going to give Angie Dickinson a handgun. And they're going to play Russian roulette. But here's the thing. She's going to use all the bullets. It's going to be five blanks and one real bullet. Orson Welles is going to be strapped to a chair with a blindfold. And she is going to shoot at Orson Welles' head over and over again until he guesses the next one's the real bullet. Shoot over there. Hmm. Now, that sounds super intense. But you know they're going to fake it. So... It's pretty clear that what was probably done was Orson Welles. The, the, this, of course, it's full of caps. Mm. Probably not even blanks, because that's actually super dangerous at a close range. Um, it's full of caps. And Orson Welles, at some point, Orson Welles says, fire at the other target. Mm. And that's probably like a radio trigger or, yeah. or operated by someone off, off stage to just blow up whenever she presses the, the trigger. Mm. So it doesn't even matter which one he says it is. And then that's that. Well, there there was, uh, there was smoke coming out of it. There was smoke, but also a hole in the target, like a bullet had gone. No, I'm saying that someone did that with like a little detonator, like off mm. off stage, no doubt. Well, some and sometimes maybe he just has a good ear. Maybe he knows what a blank sounds like. Uh, Pendul. I mean, I'm going to bring up. Are you really going to risk your life over this? Do you think Orson Welles is really going to let Angie Dickinson kill him over an unsold pilot? Well, I mean, maybe not. Do you really think that like do do dangerous stuff? Do you think Angie Dickinson? Do you think Angie Dickinson was going to agree like I'm going to be the person who killed Orson Welles this weekend? No, like that's totally what could have happened. Down in the history books. Um, uh, no, Angie Dickinson probably wouldn't have agreed to that unless she knew it was completely and 100 percent safe. Of course. From from the looks of it, it looks like Orson Welles is just sort of giving up. It's like, <laughs> like I'm gonna do this. Today. I could die. Whatever. I just don't want. I just don't care anymore. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna go down. I'm gonna go down on camera. Uh, no, I think. Uh, I, yeah, I'm sure it is pretty safe. But I'm pretty sure it wasn't as staged as you're saying it is. Uh, and I'm gonna bring up Penn and Teller uh, also okay. to address a previous point. Uh, Penn Gillette has a bit he does on stage where. Uh, he takes a nail gun and he knows how to remove nails from one of those big cartridges mm. and he has memorized the actual pattern of what nails come out at what time. Right. So he goes like board, board, and then he puts one to his hand and pulls the trigger and it's just a little blast of air. Right. And you know, board, board, blast of air, board, blast of air, blast of air, board, board, you know, because he's just memorized the actual pattern. He chose right. it ahead of time. But if he screwed up, and of he course, get a And of course the, the joke is he keeps, for, like, pretends to forget. It's like, what? One, two, three. Yeah, this one, okay. And then he puts it to his neck. I lost track. And he puts it to his neck and pulls the trigger, and of course he's okay. Yeah. But if he screwed that up, he'd get a nail in his neck. Right. He's just, you know, has memorized the pattern, or maybe even has it written down, so he's not going to screw right. it up. Uh, so he, he doesn't blow it. But there's a chance here that he could get a nail through his hand or even in his neck. Sure. Is the point. Or, or he could blow it and just, like, do a blank against the board and say, oh, well kind of lost track there yeah but this again this is just one of those things where as cool as it sounds Mm. i'm never gonna believe it this is one where even if it was all in one shot Mm. i don't know that that's a blank (laughs) i don't know that you can Uh, they they do the gag we've had experts confirm it and sign a contract Mm. that's great 
They could all be actors, man. Of course, it's all theatrical. It's fine. That's what magic is. No, it's fine. I accept it. It's fine. I accept it. But once you add the artifice of not only is it uh, on TV, but also we use that aggressive editing style that Orson Welles was so fond of. Orson Welles directed this under a pseudonym, by the way. Um, Once we add in that editing style, I don't trust any of it. And I can't even, like, give... My, uh, uh, I, I can't even yield the benefit of the doubt. I cannot, stra- uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, hmm. <laughs> I can't help you here. Uh, when you, when you, when you agree to be, to be lied to. Oh, just staging it. Well, yeah, but there's a word for it. I don't know why I'm thinking. Why, why am I like, of disbelief? suspension of disbelief. Right. <laughs> Thank okay. you. Jesus Christ. I'm going to take my film credit card away. <sighs> I don't actually have one. Um... Not anymore. <laughs> Not after the incident. Um, With the rabbit. <laughs> what does that mean? I know. Uh, anyway, uh, but uh, but yeah. So and then there's this weird bit after the, all of that. Angie Dickinson doesn't kill him. Oh, thank God. Where uh, Orson Welles is like, oh, well, this is about the time when we say goodbye. But it turns out we have 60 seconds, and I'm going to try to fill the time by reading you a random 19th century poem about a woman named Jenny. Mm. Which I have just done. And that sound you have heard is every executive in Hollywood hearing that poem and going, pass. And hanging up. Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> That's not the way you end a television series. No. I mean, even if it's interesting and maybe maybe this could have grown and become something very odd and distinctive, but I can see every fucking reason why Studio Heads pass. And it has nothing uh, yeah. to do with Orson Welles' celebrity. Hmm. It has to do with this show being weird and not working. And when I turned, tuned this in, I was expecting, actually, I was expecting the Paul Masson ad, Orson Welles. Yeah. I was expecting drunk Orson Welles. I was yeah. expecting, Phoning it in, uh, Orson Welles. Not, yeah. not at all interested, clearly yeah. uh, intoxicated on set, really cantankerous with the yeah. guests. I, I expected a disaster. Which is something that Orson Welles actually did. There are outtakes for a lot of his commercials and other projects which he clearly just did for the money. And I don't blame him for that. It's Mm. unprofessional to be drunk on stage, but I don't blame him for doing the commercials. Um, But yeah, yeah, he was he was, he didn't have a great reputation at that point. Exactly. Yeah. And I was surprised that uh, kind of how I'm not going to say the word cogent because that's not what he was going for, mm-hmm. but how uh, well realized a project this was. Well, it was clearly intentional. Everything it's, that it's he intentional. Did. It's intentional. Yeah. It fits in with his style. It fits in with his ethos, and it's clearly going for like it's a bit at trying to be commercial, but still be a little bit with Orson Welles, like with his artistic sensibilities. And I think he succeeded. Hmm. I think he actually made a really kind of fascinating program. I wouldn't have started. I guess you can start with Burt Reynolds because he's a big star. But I think you should maybe have started with somebody else who thinks a little bit more like Orson Welles. Somebody who's a little bit more of, uh, I don't want to say, like a bon vivant or an intellect. Um, they, they actually make, they make fun of Truman Capote, but they could have gotten Capote on the show. Oh, that I have expected, because yeah. like one of the last things they talk about hmm. was, uh, was a quote Truman Capote said about actors that got hmm. brought up by uh, one of their audience members. Completely off the cuff, not hmm. scripted at all. <laughs> And yeah, I have expected Truman Capote to be in the audience. I, I'm not going to lie. Mm. Um, it's not, it, Truman Capote wasn't above that. Mm. Um, what, what did you think of Breakfast at Tiffany's? <laughs> <laughs> he would have done it. He, he, he was funny. He'd do he, it. He totally would have done yeah. that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, I feel like here's... The, the show doesn't work the way it is. It just doesn't. It's okay. all over the place. The pacing's weird. Uh, the style works in fits and starts, but clearly wasn't there yet. Uh, I'm sure that if it had gone to series, they would have had a multi-camera setup, which 
would have made at the very least the interview segments a lot stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, be easier to make. Much easier to make. Dear God, it must have been annoying. Um, so that's cool. But yeah, it's it's not very well structured. Mm. It's a huge segment dedicated to the first guest, a small segment dedicated to the second guest, a couple of magic tricks that don't work, and wasting the third guest. Mm. Like, that's not a great setup for anything, really. It's not awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. It's clear that Orson Welles knows enough people that he can get cool guests on the show. That's what you get by having Burt Reynolds, the Muppets, and Angie Dickinson. That's showing that Bert, that Orson Welles, although he may have a reputation for being quote unquote difficult, although he uh, may be a pariah in some circles, he has a cachet, mm-hmm. and celebrities won't avoid him. And indeed, if he fawns over them enough, which he wasn't above, he was big fans of a lot of people. Uh, they would probably jump at the chance. It's one of the reasons people like going on the inside the actor's studio because there were no gotcha questions. It was just like, weren't you cool in Elf? Well, yes. Yes, I was cool in Elf. Thank you. I'm James Caan. Like, that's... That's and that's not what he would say, but that was the tone. It was just like, that was a good movie, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I like that. I liked working with Will Ferrell. Like, that kind of thing. It's like, yeah, I that's real chill. Mm-hmm. I want to do that. I <laughs> just go somewhere and have Orson Welles praise me. That sounds fucking amazing. But and and a lot of yeah. these shows, like the Muppet Show, or or to cite a different example, Tales from the Crypt. Mm. Like one when one big star comes in, other big stars will follow. Yeah, they've, the, they've, the curse has been lifted. Essentially, it's the Batman the series thing. We're like, yeah, it sounds stupid, but once you have Milton Berle come in mm. and play a kooky villain, everyone's like, oh, he's having fun. Can I have fun too? Burgess, and then he, Burgess Meredith, you want to play a villain? Sure. Yeah, how, want, what do you think of the Penguin? Yeah, everyone, everyone's got a villain. A villain for you. A villain for you. Yeah. A villain for you. <laughs> Why not? Cary Grant wanted to go on that show. He should have. I wouldn't that have been great. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that have been? What I don't know. It's time for play? me to destroy Batman. <laughs> <laughs> you just hear it. Hear the Cary Grant. The one shit. villain they never put on that show was uh, Two Face because they thought it was too gruesome. Okay. Cary Grant would have been a great Two Face. Oh gosh, he wouldn't, wouldn't it be been funny. Yeah. You just you just play it up. You just like. Put its half his face in a mask or something, mm. just like yeah, it's after the explosion. And you just never show it, or just Problem paint solved. it one color. What, yeah, yeah like, whatever. As long as one it's, side yeah. is Cary Grant, the other side is bright purple or something. Yeah, whatever. Mm. It's fun. Gold. You've got gold. <laughs> a talk show lives and dies based on who's in it and how good the conversation is. The conversation is good. Orson Welles could get good guests, but he found other ways to complicate it and make it the sort of thing that kind of only Orson Welles is super mega interested in. Mm. And as a result. I totally see why this wasn't picked up. I wouldn't have picked this up. If he had leaned into what you're saying, this sort of art house vibe, mm-hmm. we're like, we're going to be the cool kind of iconoclastic one and we're going to get yeah. Bergman and we're going to get all these weird people. I'm like, yeah, it's a niche audience, but I think we can sell that. Mm-hmm. You know, like we can, it's a cheap show. It's very simple to put together. Orson Welles has clout. We get people who are really, really classy mm-hmm. from all over the world. And we can have this classy counterculture talk show. If that had been the pitch, I think this might have worked. But Orson Welles wants it to be pretty mainstream. He got the Muppets. He got Angie Dickinson. He's doing all the magic. And he doesn't have the sensibility for it. I think he he has the sensibility for it. But I think he was torn between doing something that was a little bit more what he wanted and trying to appeal to a mass audience, which is why he asked somebody like uh, Burt Reynolds. True for a lot of his career. Uh, yeah. So I, I think if he had actually gone full, full like whole hog and mm. 
decided to get Pauline Kale on the show or something. Oh my god, that would be oh yeah. god, I would die. <laughs> oh my god, like a half hour with Pauline Kale talking to Orson Welles, and after a while, you can't figure out who's interviewing who. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and, they, and, they, I would and they start die. like dropping in these little like snipes at each other. That would be the best podcast ever. <laughs> Orson oh Welles my. and Pauline Kale. Oh my god, can you Where, imagine? Where's that walk and talk film? Oh god, yes. <laughs> Who plays called Pauline Kale though? Oh, at this who point? cares? Yeah. Like, I'll watch it. Like, I'm trying to think how old she would have been. Like, if we're yeah. doing this era, like late 70s, I'm trying to think of like, hold on, hold on, let me see. Because I'm trying to, because there's a lot of people I think could do it. But I, I, I think if he had gotten a little bit more of somebody who's a little bit more of a, an intellect, like mm-hmm. Truman Capote, like, like Pauline Kale, like Gore Vidal, you know, got right. somebody who is really known for quote being smart on TV back when you could do that sort of thing. Back when there were TV programs of like uh, just two smart guys debating politics mm. with one another, and they were just really interesting guys, and they were really intelligent, and that was the selling point. Yeah, you don't have shows like that anymore. People are just yammering all the time now. Uh, Paul and Kale would have been about sixty-ish. Okay, so yeah. So I'm trying to think of like maybe Mary Steenburgen <laughs> or Michelle Pfeiffer or something mm. like that. They would be cool. I think Brenda Blethyn would be too old, but she'd be I think she. I think she'd be a little old for Alice and Janney. Done. <laughs> Done. Uh, okay, Alice and Janney. Done. Alice I and just Janney cast Pauline Kale. Kale. Done. She wins another Oscar. You, you get. You get uh, or the guy who plays Orson Welles gets snubbed out of out of you know historical you know, respect. You know, you get Christian McKay who played him in Me and Orson Welles because he was yeah. actually really good as Orson. I also liked. Uh, I also think Angus McFadden was good as him. Mm. He's fine. He, he has he has the spirit, but he doesn't look or sound anything like Orson. You don't Welles. have to look or sound like. Yeah, I guess him. so. It's fine. Well, you still sound a little like You're not actors, you're smokers. I'd love to see uh, Liev Schreiber return to the role again. As older <laughs> Liev Schreiber played Orson Welles in a pretty good uh, TV movie called RKO... 281. 281. I, I almost got the number wrong, yeah. But uh, it's about the making of Citizen Kane and the uh, the battle over it afterwards. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's for film nerds more than anything else, but it's quite good. Yeah. It's got James Cromwell, Melanie Griffith, John Malkovich in it. It's pretty solid. But yeah, it, it, I I think there's the makings of a pretty good show. The problem is there's so much in this show. Yeah, it's so big, it's too big. It's so it's long. Way too big. Uh, the you know the interview is so long, and it goes to so many places, and then it ends with this big magic act. And presumably this is going to be late at night. So by the time you get to the magic act, it's like twelve thirty, and you yeah. want to go to bed. Yeah. Also, uh, remember this is going to be weekly. I don't think yeah, Wilson is going to put this much effort into the magic every single week. Your pilot it, should tell you what the show like, is going to be every week. It feels like this, it, it, it's not just a pilot, it feels like this is a one-and-done TV special. Yeah. Like, this is the Orson Welles interview special, and we just happen to get uh, uh, Burt Reynolds. And I'm telling you, I'm putting on my development hat, mm. and I'm giving him, like, Orson, here's the biggest fucking note, man. Mm. You get one magic trick per show, and you have to include the guests. You get one magic trick you, per show, Yeah, it's no longer an hour and a half, you get one hour. Yeah, and the yeah. guests have to be in it, and it can't be all about you, it needs to be about the guest being surprised, or mm. dunked in water, or something, like, you gotta have more fun with them on of course, it. we're giving him these notes, and he's walking away even Of course faster, he fucking so, is, yeah. he's always said, well, as well he should. <laughs> he should punch me in the face for giving him that note, mm. and I would make a mold of my black eye, <laughs> and I would bronze it. <laughs> Because this is the black eye Orson Welles gave me. And, it, and more power to him. How am I supposed to stress the first word in the sentence if the first word in the sentence is in? You don't say in July. You could, Orson. It's actually not that difficult. But Who okay. are you? I, I'm your writer. I wrote some of your best work. Shakespeare wrote some of my best work. <laughs> 
Orson Welles did um, an episode of I Love Lucy, which is really fucking funny. <laughs> I haven't seen uh, it. He, he oh, does God. Shakespeare. great. Um, anyway, um, so yeah. Mm. Eventually, I think we should try to do Orson Welles' a sketchbook if we can track down all the episodes. Oh, for sure. Um, He's a fascinating guy. This was yeah. a fascinating project. Do you think it was canceled think... too soon? Do you think it should have been picked up? Be honest. When we see these like these unaired pilots, mm-hmm. and then we see the show that came after, there's usually been a little bit of workshopping, and sure. I think there's definitely enough potential here to turn this into an Orson Welles show that I think plays into his interests more strongly, uh-huh. and as such makes it a more interesting show. But if it's less commercial, strangely enough, it works a lot better. But mm-hmm. do you think Orson Welles is going to take your studio now? Absolutely not. Okay, not for a second. He's going to be really difficult to work with. Okay, uh, so even. At best, I think this is still just a one-season show. Yeah. I think you would have done, like, six episodes that would have been great. Maybe some of the best television you've ever seen. Uh-huh. And it, it would have been canceled. And it would, be, and it would have been canceled, and yeah. it would be lost to history, because yeah. it wouldn't be on DVD or anything. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't. I honestly don't think this was canceled too soon. I think there's a reason okay. the show was Listen, I, if it's completely retooled, fine. But not, that's not, not the not promise com- of a not, pilot. Not completely, just I enough. I think it know? needs to be significantly retooled. All right. And that point becomes a different show, in which point we need to have a new pilot for it and everything. So I'm just going to say this was not. It breaks my heart because I'm an Orson Welles fan, mm. but this this was not canceled too soon. This is not one of his better projects. I don't think he, I don't think he nailed it out of the gate. If this was a dry run, and mm. he had gotten a few more shows after this, and he had shown me that this was going to gel together and this was going to be a show that worked as a show, and not just a collection of things Orson Welles is interested in right now, mm. you got me. Mm-hmm. And I will watch this show, and I will probably sing its praises, and it will be very influential to a young version of me. Mm-hmm. But no, this this just version, this doesn't work. It sucks. But um, the situation sucks. I don't think the special sucks. I just don't think it works. Oh, fair. Yeah. Um, I, I think it could have, but yeah. uh, I, I think it's I think it's closer to working than you give it credit for. Maybe. Uh, and, and maybe it's just because I'm sort of... I've seen uh, the other side of the wind, and I've seen yeah. sort of late a lot of late era Orson Welles projects, well, several Orson Welles projects. So I'm kind of on the wavelength already, mm-hmm. and I think there's there's no reason why that couldn't have worked on television. Well, perhaps. Yeah. Sadly, we'll never know. We won't. We won't. That sucks. Of course, that's the nature of our show. <laughs> so, sorry about that. Sorry to bring you down. Uh, all, all our shows die. What's that? What's the side of them? Except are, for Two and Birdie. That's right, Tuca and Birdie has been resurrected. Yes. At least it's one of the good ones. They put the paddles on that one. But now bring back the pitch. Pit, there's been talk there was talk there for a second for pitch. Yeah, I know. But they were gonna bring that back. I think I think too much time has passed now. Now, like there was uh, yeah, there was, there was a brief moment where it looked like pitch might come back on like Amazon, but no, it didn't. You know, happen. I wanna see an almost human movie. That'd be cool. Like a feature film. Yeah. Theatrical or released feature film for almost human. I'm down. Anyway. I, don't, I don't need the series to come back, but I would like a movie. Anyway, that's it for Cancel Too Soon this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, we will be back next week with a review of not the new show Space Force with Fred Willard. The old show Space Force with Fred Willard. <laughs> the late, great Fred Willard, comedian extraordinaire, sadly passed away a few weeks ago. And one of his last projects was a new streaming television series called Space Force, which is starring um, Steve Carell. Was starring Steve Carell, which is poking fun at the new quote unquote Space Force that has been created under the Trump administration, uh, which nobody really asked for. And nobody knows why we're doing that. And, and is a terrible idea all it, around. It makes it's it's weird and it makes no sense unless, you know, aliens are invading next week. Like, it's really weird. Uh, but it turns out in 1978, there was a failed pilot for a television series 
about astronauts in deep space working in a space force that co-starred Fred Willard. So, yeah, we got to do that. <laughs> We're totally doing that. Are you kidding me? So we'll be doing that next week uh, here at Cancel Too Soon. Thank you, everybody, for listening. A very special shout out to all of our Patreon subscribers over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, every one of our patrons gets to vote for an episode of Cancel Too Soon every month. This month's episode was the Orson Welles show. So thank you for that. Interesting pick. Sorry it didn't blow me away, but you know they can't all be winners. In fact, none of them are winners. This is canceled too soon. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll have a new poll up for, for June sometime in the near future. Uh, we got some cool stuff in the pipeline. We've discovered some interesting shows that, you know, we're always discovering stuff we didn't know existed. Mm. You'd think after doing this for like four or five years, we, we everything we'd would be on our radar. But no, now. there's always something new. And we've actually uncovered a few weird things that we're really excited to get to this year that Along are new to way. us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, we can't wait to do uh, more of them. June is looking to be an exciting month. Uh, and uh, yeah it's going to be a real blast so uh, thank you everybody once again thank you everybody for contributing if you want to contribute again patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network we have a ton of exclusive content there already as soon as you sign up boom lots of exclusive content right there at your fingertips Um, we've got uh, shows about the Oscars shows about Star Trek shows about Firefly shows about Disney and beyond it's pretty cool Mm. Uh, we also have our letters show we've got mail if you want to write in about uh, Orson Welles and the Orson Welles show we'd love to hear from you or anything else really the world is your oyster email us about any of it letters at criticallyacclaimed.net we might read your email on an upcoming episode of we've got mail we're also on twitter at critic acclaim I myself am at William Bibiani I'm at Whitney Seibold and that is a wrap we'll see you next season (laughs) 